Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Whitney Tilson. Whitney, how are you doing? I'm great. Good to be back. Glad to have you here. This is our third time meeting, and I think this will be kind of freeform because I, you're in my apartment, you got here, and we started, boom, talking about, you're like, how are things going? And I talk about how my, I'm off the grid for a couple of weeks now, and uh, I think I like freeform conversation with you. Most other guests, it's more directed, and I'm, I'm very curious how things have gone since we spoke and you were picking stuff up, you were avoiding straws. We talked about flying and I finally found, I found a, a peer-reviewed paper that estimated. So there's lots of things we could talk about. Okay. But now I really, I told you how I'm off the grid and now I kind of want to answer questions about that because I've done a couple episodes for so, solo episodes. Uh, so regular listeners, well, this, now this will have been months ago. So years ago, no, I'm sorry. A while ago, about a year ago, I bought, used off of Craigslist, a battery. And it's designed for camping. And, and then I had to wait until I could find solar panels to charge the battery. So first, I got the battery and I made sure that it could power my pressure cooker to cook one load of Famous No Packaging Vegan Stew, which you're invited to come sometime to enjoy. And it did it. So the next step is I have to charge it with solar. Oh, now I have to preface this. If someone is addicted to heroin, and they acknowledge that they're addicted. And they, from the heart, commit to getting off the addiction. And someone comes in with a plan. Then if you give that person methadone, and that's part of the plan, then methadone can help them wean themselves off of this addiction. It's critical. If they don't acknowledge the addiction, if they don't commit, if there's no plan, if you just have someone taking method, uh, heroin and you just say, like, here's some methadone, good luck. It's not, they're going to say, great. Now I got one opiate and another. I'll take them both. This one isn't quite as fun, but I'll do it. So if we have a bunch of people polluting using fossil fuels and we just throw solar at them, they'll say, great. Now I got one source of power. I got another source of power. I'll use them both. That's what we're doing. Now, if someone acknowledges that fossil fuels, that they're addicted, fossil fuels being one aspect of things that pollute, things that are lowering Earth's ability to sustain life, and they commit to getting off of lowering Earth's ability to sustain life, and they have a plan to wean themselves off of that, then solar can help lower that. That's not what we're doing. We're just like, here's some solar. And people are saying, great, I got fossil fuels and I got solar. I'll use them both. Now, there may be some lowering of some, of some but people are not using solar to... They're just like, great, now I got this too. I believe that I have a plan to get off of it. So I'm using solar like methadone. So I got the solar panel, not as a final solution, but as, as a test to see what I could do. Now, just so your listeners understand, you live in an apartment building in Manhattan. Yeah, so I'm, where is your solar? You don't have a big lawn to put up a solar yeah. array. And this is not, I'm not trying to solve all the world's problems. I'm not even try, trying to solve my problems. This is not sustainable. But I got this camping, it's designed for camping. It's a solar panel. It's like uh, 150, 200 watt. And it's designed for portability. So that means it's more expensive but I can carry it up to my roof and power the battery up there. So right now, it's up there powering. Okay, I thought you were going to tell me you'd stick it out the window right back here, but you, there's did. not enough sunlight coming here. It's, right. it's in the shade, it looks like. Uh, when it's not summer or late spring, in the winter, the sun is lower, and so I get direct sunlight, but it takes like four days right. to power the thing. Whereas if I put it up on the roof on a bright day like today, it's four hours to charge it, and that'll last me a couple days. 
Now, do you, do you take the stairs or you take the elevator stairs. up? Stairs. Okay, good. Because if you take the elevator, that would yeah. defeat the whole purpose. <laughs> so I've been going up and down the stairs, 11 flights. Okay, so it's good other, exercise too. Yes, my legs are tired. But in my head, I think of how our ancestors, for most of history, could not simply get out their phone and swipe and have someone deliver something to them. They had to go hunt an animal or dig stuff out of the ground or right. climb a tree. So I'm thinking this is a connect. I'm, I'm, people who travel to go see other cultures... Here's another way to get another culture. Unplug your fridge, and suddenly your cuisine has changed dramatically. And so that's, this is not a um, solve-everything thing, but the way I think about it is this has become my Kitty Hawk moment. I've done a bunch of things up until now that have been avoiding packaged food, avoiding flying, things like that. Something about this one feels like, did the Wright brothers make a 747? No. And not that I'm promoting more 747s, but they made something that kind of did something. It was the first ever. And of course, lots of people have been using solar, but I think not in Manhattan. So, right. And by the way, if you want to use that historical analogy, it was decades, decades from that first flight before there was any kind of sustainable you know, production of aircraft and usage of aircraft. So these things take time, even when there's a Kitty Hawk moment. Yeah. And I think you might know, if you know that history, you might know that Langley was working on it and he was... He had all the resources of the U.S. government, not all, but you know, he had the U.S. government backing him. And he was not able to do what they did because they were scrappier and they knew how to make bikes. And that was, you know, they had the relevant skills. And I'm a big fan of using solar to decrease our pollution, but it has to be part of a plan to actually decrease pollution, not just use solar. Right. Now, let me ask, uh, my parents live outside Nairobi in Kenya. Electricity is expensive and worst sporadic. So my dad bought a solar array that he puts, uh, they have a, you know, they're out in tea plantation country and they have a big barn for their horses. So he's put up a bunch of solar panels up on top of the barn, feeding into a battery. And that is 90, now 90% of their electric consumption. Mm -hmm. But he's not, uh, you know, he's socially liberal, politically liberal, but he's not, it's not part of any environmental crusade. It's to make sure that they don't run out of power, you know, when the power conks out. His other alternative, of course, is just buy a diesel generator that automatically flips on uh, when the power goes off. So he is substituting power from the grid. Every watt that his solar powers produce is one less watt that he's consuming off the grid. It's a perfect substitute. So it's not quite like your methadone heroin analogy where your assumption is the addict is just going to do both. It's going to do more. Mm -hmm. Right here, it's a substitute. So is that okay? Like, there's no grand plan. He doesn't give a... I'm just going to say, he doesn't, he's not doing it for environmental reasons. Um, it's just, uh, you know, practical. And, and he thinks he's going to save money over time. Cost him 20 bucks, 20,000 bucks to put in the system. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he's done the math over the years. Uh, he's seen more than 80% reduction in his power bill. Uh, watts consumed from the Kenya network. What, what are your thoughts on that? So my thoughts on it are, now you changed the question. First was, is that okay? And that's a judgment. And I, that's a matter of values. And anyone can answer that for themselves. So my thoughts on it are that it sounds interesting. I mean, the main thing to me is, what are his goals? If his goals are, my goals here are to live by my values. And the, the specific value of, if my money is paying for a coal plant to burn coal, more coal than it would have otherwise, I, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. So I'm trying, I mean, I should have mentioned also, I'm dramatically lowering my power use. So like one thing I've done is 
I shifted my day earlier because right now the sun rises around 5, 5.30. So instead of going to sleep at 10, 11, 12, I'm going to sleep earlier, waking up with the sun, and then I have a bunch of sunlight. So that's solar power too, but it's not going, you know, it's like direct. Right. So the fridge remains unplugged. And I have to work on like how much am I using this computer, which right now is not plugged in. Because you're charging your computer off the battery that's charging right. up on the roof right now. Right. Now, I do allow myself to do things that I did before. So I used to sometimes during the day work at NYU. So I, if I'm at NYU, I plug in there like as I normally would. Uh, I'm not trying to go only solar completely, just the apartment. That's the arbitrary boundary that I set for this little experiment. Right. Although I also got hit with the battery in this in the computer broke. <laughs> so suddenly I couldn't. I had to completely power down everything. Right. So that was like a little perfect storm thing. Then there were three days of rain. So it, in other words, your laptop, bat your laptop to even turn on had to have an outside source of power. It wouldn't run off the battery. Right. I couldn't. And you wouldn't plug it into the wall even for that. You had to figure out a hack to run right. it off your battery. Right. Which meant turning it off completely, and then taking it somewhere else and bring it all the way back up again. So I couldn't save things, <laughs> and. Uh, that was painful. I'll bet. And then, but the bigger thing was like, what do I do when there's three days of rain? Because then I have to figure out, I have to plan. When am I going to cook my meals? How long is that meal going to last for? How much can I eat? Like, I can't cook beans without, so do I start sprouting the beans? Right. You can come over to my place. So, you know, I've got food. I'll feed you I, if you're really hungry. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that I found is one of the big solutions, whenever, the solutions always seem to involve other people and community, often family, often people living close to you. So that doesn't, I would take you up on that. Plus I'd ride my bike up there. There you go. I rode my bike down yeah. here. Uh, so what do I think of, of your father's thing out in Nairobi, if I heard mm -hmm. right? Outside Nairobi, yeah. So the first thing I think of is like, how much power is he using that's unnecessary? Because before the grid, there, it was probably also a ranch or a farm or whatever. It probably worked before there was a grid. Right, right. So... I'm inclined to wonder, can he get back to that? Right. Is he interested in that? Yeah, because it's sort of interesting. Um, Kenya, in the same way uh, sub-Saharan Africa is skipping over wired phones. Mm -hmm. They're skipping over the big grids. Right. It's, uh, they're skipping over, it's going increasingly solar mm -hmm. just because the, you know, the infrastructure is just so poor and doesn't reach so many areas. And so, for example, we went out to a safari camp um, just on safari um, in the middle of the Masai Mara, and there was a huge solar array, and my dad was sort of interested. He hadn't bought his system yet, but he was sort of interested in a large-scale system. We went in, and there were Tesla power walls hanging on the wall there, and the guy was really interested, and my dad and I were really interested, so you know, we dove into the weeds. And this, you know, major multi-million dollar business, you know, with hundreds of people providing full power. And they used to have to run fuel trucks out, you know, hours on dirt roads through the Masai Mara to deliver diesel fuel to run the, these big, noisy, polluting generators. And now they're, they haven't completely junked the generators, but again, 80, 90% off of them, um, you know, only if they have many days of rain and clouds where they can't charge the batteries, you know, do they have to fire up the generators. So, but again, they're not doing it really for environmental reasons. Doing it just because it, it now the cost of solar panels and so forth has reached the point where in a country like Kenya uh, it just makes dollars and cents. So in that case, it's um, 
I mean, so the intended effects seem great. What are the unintended side effects? Because technologies always have them and we always miss them. So I'm inclined to think by analogy of one of my go-to ones would be Robert Moses building highways in New York City. Right. And in the early, very early 1900s, it seemed great. Cars, there was not a lot of traffic. And so you're nodding yes. No, I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, what do you call it, road racism or whatever, you know, what it did to poor communities. What it did, yeah, the, anyone, who's, anyone who knows anything about the Cross Bronx sure. and the bridges that he built, they, were, they couldn't get the buses under. But also there was this pattern of when he'd build a road and there'd be no congestion. And then people would adjust because they liked the road and then congestion would hit and they'd say, oh, it looks like there's more demand than we thought. Right. Thinking that the demand was fixed. Right. But they were in, in creating the demand. Right. So they'd build another road, another road. And it, right. So what's going on here, what I see with solar cars, the first un, there's a few clear unintended side effects, which would be like the mining for minerals that maybe we can substitute, maybe we can't. Uh, if we can substitute, maybe those mines will go away and we, that, will, that problem will solve itself. But the bigger one to me is when I see the sub $1,000 cars coming out of China, because these motors that can power a bicycle, put four of them into a car and you can get a nice little thing that goes around, around the city. So a car for $800, if you get into a fender bender, I think that's going to be disposable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've already, I did a post the other day about, I was walking down the street and I saw an electric scooter, which was not too long ago, a couple thousand bucks. Now they're all over the place and it was broken and just... In the gutter. Someone just left it there. Something that not long ago was really valuable. And cars not long ago were really valuable. They're still valuable cars, but there's also cars that are just going to be disposable. So are we going to have landfills filled with sub $1,000 cars? I predict yes, unless we choose not to go that direction. Hmm. Now, choosing not to go that direction for most people would mean choosing not to choose a path of efficiency and democratization. Which sounds like, why would we not want to make, if it's good, don't we want to make it available to everyone? Well, making things more efficient. Here are some things that were made to design, to alleviate an earlier problem. Morphine to stop opium addiction. Heroin to stop morphine addiction. Cocaine to, a cocaine I don't think was, I don't know if it was supposed to stop addiction. But the pattern was making something more efficient and democratized. Same with crack. Mm-hmm. So that pattern seems to, if we keep pushing more and more, I think that technology will ultimately augment the values of the people using it. And if those values are to grow, then I think that it will ultimately exacerbate the problems that we see from the system today. That If we make parts of a system more efficient, but it's the system is the same, I think that we will get a more efficient system, which means we'll pollute more efficiently. So it's interesting. You sort of layer on a, there's the actual deeds, but then there's almost like a moral overlay. You would argue like, it's, you call it a plan or whatever. But the way I'm hearing it is I sort of hear it like there has to be you have to be committed to the environmental aspect of it. Otherwise, your argument would be not just for moral reasons, but just because there are unintended side effects. Like if you 
you know, it's not just inherently good to start using solar if there is if it isn't part of a bigger plan rooted in caring about the environment or something. Is that a well, reasonable it, statement? Yes, although I'll, I'll refine it a bit. The distinction is between changing an element of a system and changing the system itself. Right. And you can change elements of a system and you end up with the same system. To, and as far as I know, to change a system, there's different ways to do it, but, and it's hard, Some, perhaps impossible. But the changing the goals and the values driving the system is the key thing. And if you don't change those goals and values, then you're very likely going to have the same system. Yeah. And if you keep making it more and more and more efficient, which is what we've been doing for the past several hundred years, right. then we're more efficient than ever and we're polluting more than ever. Our problem is not that we're inefficient. Our problem is the total amount of pollution. And that is increasing nonstop. So I predict that switching to solar, because it's more efficient, will result in a decrease in the short term and an increase in the long term unless we consciously choose to change the values and goals, then we'll implement the same technology we'll implement in different ways. So if you look at Amsterdam and their planning, they have different goals. They also change how their roads are, are how they build the roads and how they do things. And you, you might know that in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s and 50s, it was overrun with cars. It was not a bicycle friendly place. They had a plan to build highways into the city in the American style of the time. They consciously chose not to do it. And they're on a path of continual improvement to make it more friendly for bikes and so forth. So I was just there a couple months ago. It was, uh, I could see it. And it's my understanding. I think I told you about Not Just Bikes. The, did I tell you about Not Just Bikes, the YouTube channel? I don't think so. Oh, man. It's this guy who he's been a, he's been a guest on the podcast. Okay. He grew up in Canada, traveled around the world, ended up in Amsterdam, and really likes it. And he's really in, he's a city planner or knows city planning. And he started doing a bunch of videos of what makes Amsterdam and Holland city planning different and why he likes it so much. And it's not just bikes. So the channel's not just bikes. I see. And it's, I won't go into, it's like, I love watching those videos. They're tremendous. And he gets like millions of views and it's on city planning. Like who? Catnip for environmentalists. <laughs> well, it's not, I mean, yes, there's environmental stuff, but it's, it's like, like a great one that I love is uh, cities aren't loud. Cars are. Mm-hmm. And he points out the effect of like cities aren't, it's not cities in general, it's cars and it's not, and, mo- and motorcycles. And, and then he points out places where they've specifically designed it with noise pollution as part of it. So, and there's also city fiscal responsibility. He, he talks a lot about how American cities built on growth, they need all this debt and they keep growing, but it doesn't work in the long term. So I can't give that. You have to watch his things to get more depth on that. And he talks about like the streets and his roads and the strodes. Have you ever heard the term strode? No. So a street is like Greenwich Avenue 10th Street here. Right. People come here. They want to be here. And there's stuff to do here. A road would be something from outside the city that would get you a place. A strode and, and roads don't have, there's an on-ramp and an off-ramp here and there, but mostly it's designed to go fast. A strode would be something that a lot of American suburbs have, which is like, it's kind of designed to go fast, but there's also on and off like stores and malls and all these things that have come off it. So you, it looks like you can go fast, but people are constantly coming in and getting off and there's stoplights. 
and it's and so you actually have to go slow so strodes are don't work hmm, interesting i mean watches to get the full picture so as to what you asked me the question you asked me of it's not a moral issue to me because my values and other people's values i don't like people imposing their values on me so i try to avoid imposing my values on others i may disagree with them and i have my opinions of their and my judgments of their actions but i presume that they're acting by their values if they're not i would like to and their values are in line with mine i'd like to lead them to help act on the values that they really want to but for my personal morals yes i want to change my behavior to be in line with my personal morals other people i i just to the extent that they want to achieve some sort of sustainability which i view as maintaining earth's ability to sustain life which i believe is lowering if they want to increase that i want to help them right and so i want to help them become aware of that mainly not through giving facts and numbers i don't find that helpful but through experiences where their experiences reveal to them well two ways one way one on one is through experiences where their experiences reveal to them oh this isn't the shit show that i thought it was like to act sustainably is not deprivation and sacrifice and through community by talking with people like you who are you might be humble and say you're not that much of a community leader but i see you as a leader of a community because you have lots and lots of people who listen to you then if people who are leaders in communities change and share what they like then i think it's more likely for people that then communities can change mm-hmm. what percentage of americans do you think like have any concept of like sustainability and what their values there are or whatever like the like 1% or like i would guess that a very high number say that there's a lot of litter around them mhm i think a lot of people have some sense of like there's mercury in their fish i think people who live in places where there's smokestacks and and stuff then you know it's cute for them i would guess that a lot of people who live in where fish stocks aren't what they, what what they once were if you live in a place like hawaii or um places that were once pristine I think it's been I think it'll probably be even acute for them. And I think quite I I wonder what percentage of people in the United States uh live in a place where there's just basic recycling, right? Where you put, you know, where they have to think regularly about, oh, okay, this is a can or a bottle or something that I'm going to put somehow separately. It'll get picked up separately. I put it out at the curb. Like that that number I think might be what? A quarter of Americans, a half of Americans are doing recycling at home, I don't know. Or doing it versus in a place where it could be done where they're aware of it or where in a place I I don't know. I don't know. I mean maybe I just think, you know, my world view is the coasts where it's probably fairly high, but the rest of America is there, you know. My this is my hunch. I haven't like studied this, but I would guess that it's a very high number, like upwards of 90% are aware that they're environmental problems. Mm-hmm. But there's something separate from that which is um resistance right. to even self-awareness of it, to being aware of it themselves because if I believe something, but that belief makes me feel what I call slippery emotions, emotions that like helplessness or hopelessness or guilt or shame, right? Or insecurity, right? Or impotence. Right. Then I tend to shove that down cuz I don't like feeling that way. So I don't think about it. Right. Or it's just people are busy and, you know, it just doesn't, you know, people are sort of aware of it and whatever, but, you know, I don't know, they're like uh Chamath's uh Palipatayo um the 
you know, the tech guy who was talking about the Uyghurs. Have you seen this infamous meme? I haven't seen it. Okay. <laughs> Just if you Google Chamath meme or something, and he was asked about the Uyghurs, and he holds his hand out like this, and he's like, you know, yeah, you know, I, I'm aware that, you know, the Chinese government's oppressing the Uyghurs, but it doesn't even reach the level of, you know, entering my consciousness, you know, because he's like, I'm, I'm a busy guy. I got a lot on my mind. And he's going like this. So the meme is him with his hand, you know, sort of setting a bar. And it's like there are a million issues in the world and I can only think about 10 and the Uyghurs are not in the top 10. And he got a lot of flack for it. But I think he was sort of being honest, like there are a million issues in the world, right? And uh, the question is, is I suppose the challenge for someone who's passionate about this like you is, is, you know, how do you raise that awareness? And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to do it. I thought Al Gore's making a movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and circulating that out there did a huge amount to raise awareness and education about the issue he was passionate about. I think that was important at that time, critical at that time. And I think he achieved that. I think now the issue is not awareness. Now the issue is resistance. And resistance could be at the individual level, like what I talked about. It could also be at the community level where communities shun. Uh, and if someone feels, I think a lot of people have done something like this. Uh, they decide to go for a week without straws. Mm -hmm. They're at the restaurant. The waiter brings out a bunch of straws and they say, can you take these back? And the waiter says, I'm just going to throw them out. You might as well use them. And they feel like, well, this was a waste of time. Right. And at the end of the week, the world looks exactly as, as it did before. Right. So it inconveniences them maybe embarrass them, didn't change anything. They've proved to themselves, what I do doesn't matter. And so if I can't do anything, it may be an important issue, but I can't do anything about it. I can't make it rain or stop raining. That's, you know, I can't change gravity and I can't change that we're polluting. So I think there's a lot of people who have, for various, lots of reasons, you know, that's one way it could happen, but many other ways that people feel like, whatever. Right. I, I would almost say, I think the biggest obstacle or barrier to catalyzing action and changing in behavior and views and so forth isn't like sort of negative, like people like, oh, you know, if I do something, you know, it's just issue fatigue. I think one of the effects of social media is I feel like I'm constantly bombarded by lots of important issues. People are posting articles of interest on Facebook, sending me emails. Uh, I probably consume five times as much information as I did pre-smartphone because I've always got my smartphone, which means I'm like on the bike ride down here. I was listening to a podcast, uh, Lex Fridman's podcast, interviewing Jonathan Haidt about the effect of social media, uh, particularly on teenage girls. And that's a big issue. I've got three girls. My last daughter a week ago uh, exited her teen years. But at one time, I had three teenage girls, 19, 16, 13. They're now 26, 23, and 20. But boy, the issues of, you know, body issue, the ideal beauty or whatever, that I think Instagram turbocharges these feelings of insecurity, et cetera. Like, just as an example, like, that's an issue that's sort of front and center on my mind. Then right before that, what I was listening to was John Oliver's last week tonight on Sunday about putting uh, school shootings and how foolish it is to address school shootings by hiring uh, armed guards to put in every school in America, how that actually doesn't deter shootings and has all sorts of negative unintended consequences, right? So literally just in the past hours, I was coming down here Mm -hmm. 
two big issues I was engaging in, you know, half hour to one hour podcasts now or YouTube videos. I'm listening to it high speed, but you know, and I just, it almost feels overwhelming. And now I'm coming down to talk to you, you know, about something that I sort of care about, but I'm like, okay, now how do I prioritize like today, Ukraine, which is something I care about and the horrific things happening there, school shootings, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, girls' body image and that, you know, preteen girls' suicides have doubled to tripled in the last 10 years, basically since smartphones became available. Now, can you prove causation there? You know, what are the causes of it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that's the challenge. That's the challenge we all have. You've got your big issues. The big issues I've been involved with historically have been education reform and now criminal justice reform. But I do tend to get... The pandemic was uh, something I dove deep into in the past two, three months. It's actually Ukraine sort of came out of nowhere. I raised, you know, more than $10 million uh, for Ukraine. But now it's almost like the U.S. government has stepped forward with $40 billion. So I'm like, okay, that seems to be taken care of right now. $10 million of private money isn't going to move the needle now that the Congress has approved big dollars, Right. And so, so now I'm moving on to, to the next issue. So I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose. For someone who does care about a lot of things and wants to make the world a better place, and that's part of my personal mission, okay, even if you get somebody to that point, then figuring out, okay, of the hundred different issues to try and make an impact on, right? That's, I think, the challenge for you and for all of us. Yeah, and in your case, the reason the pandemic came up, I think it was entirely based on nature. I mean, you looked at nature and human interaction with nature and realized this is, it's not like someone convinced you of it. I mean, you read predictions of what, what might happen and saw a couple possible futures and chose one of them, of the various futures, some seemed pretty scary and some seemed much less scary. Something like that. I'm not sure. But in the case of the environment, I'm like, why did I choose it? Something like that. I mean, it was really reading, I mean, some limits to growth was, was a big one. Last time we spoke, you talked about your flying as probably not making much of a difference. And, yes. And it seemed, my takeaway from what you said was that your guess at what, how much pollution your flying was causing was dramatically less than it was. So in that case, there's an awareness issue. It could be that I'm, that, my view of, your pollu- of the pollution caused by your flying was significantly higher than yours and meaningful. Yours was lower than mine, and it wasn't that meaningful. And, but you might also say, well, maybe it was really high for an individual, but that's still not meaningful on the global scale. So I don't feel like I'm... What's driving me is not some opinion of mine, but it's nature and human behavior if we continue business as usual versus being led in some other way. So there's a big awareness piece that for someone who has no awareness, awareness can be very important, that this is a global issue that could involve billions of people dying. Like that's not out of the question in a short period of time and economic collapse and things that would lead to wars over resources and things like that. So that seems to me an outcome that I don't like, that I don't want to live through that. And some people will say, oh, you know, Humans had our chance. Maybe it's the time for cockroaches next. Or we'll live in some other... To which I point out... Uh, sorry, I'm digressing, but I'm going to go with the digression. Right. 
did I tell you about the experiments with the, uh, the cold water and the hand in the cold water? I've heard of this, but I'm not sure. So it's, they're called empathy gaps. And okay. we're very poor at judging how we'll feel when we're in a different situation or other people. Mm-hmm. So they put people in a room. They sort of say, okay, here's a bucket of cold water. Put your hand in. It's cold. And they say, okay, we've got a stopwatch. How long can you keep your hand in that cold water? And they, you know, they just tested it. They just touched it. So they know it's cold. And they say, I don't know, minute, five minutes. And they go, okay, we'll start the stopwatch. Go for it. And they put their hand in and boom, take it right back out. And they're like, why don't you keep it in? What happened in five minutes? And like, it's cold. Right. So we were very poor. The classic one is they put them in a room. Oh, they give college students, as always, mm-hmm. a questionnaire about like, would you have sex with someone who had this disease? Would you have sex with some like sexual habits? Then they put them in a room and they always say with saran wrap over the keyboard of a computer with a bunch of porn on it. And they say, go to town, answer the questions while you're doing the porn. <laughs> and the risk level is much higher. People would do things that when they're in an aroused right. emotional state, right. as they put, then uh, they'll do things that they will, oh, sure, I'd do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to the point of like risking their lives with their diseases, you know, AIDS and things like that, or getting someone pregnant or becoming pregnant. Right. They'll raise the risk level when they're aroused. So it's easy to say, oh, we'll handle that when it happens. But when some armed group of thugs is at your door and talking to your three daughters, then it's very different than this abstract sense of like, oh, you know, maybe the human race needs a little bit of culling. So this is very serious to me. And for generations, we could say, oh, that's sometime off in the future. And we've all done this calculation where it's like, it says like by 2050, X will happen. We're like, well, let's see, 2050, I was born in 1970, so I'll be 80 years old. Oh, luckily I avoid the worst of it. So I don't have to worry about that. Like we do that internally, something like that. But we can't do that anymore. It's happening now. It seems to me, some might disagree. I'm not here to convince them otherwise, but it seems pretty clear to me. So I'm driven by what seems to me an inevitable outcome that if we don't act, now here's what, but even that I didn't act on for decades of my life with a PhD in physics, knowing all the science and what was going on, not until I practiced acts of sustainability myself and had the life-changing experience that my life, each time that I've done these things, whether it's avoiding packaged food, avoiding flying, unplugging the fridge, using, uh, opening the circuit so I'm not connected to the electric grid for my goal is a month. Each time I thought I couldn't make it. Each time I thought it would make my life, wor- my life worse. Now I'm, I'm expecting it's going to improve life. Mm-hmm. In way- but always in ways I couldn't predict. So that's something I simply do not see coming from anyone. Not Greta, not Al Gore, not DiCaprio, not, not the people who live off in the woods. Life in Manhattan, I prefer it the, more, the less power that I use. Now it's difficult there's no support. There's lots of support for burning fossil fuels. There's not a lot of support for not. So it's like living in a very different culture. I've switched cultures while living physically in the old culture. I believe that many people will like the switch as well. Mm-hmm. So I believe that, and I have a lot of experience of leading people to make these changes, to change, and they report liking it. Now they're doing modest changes, but that's how continual improvement works is if you want to change and then you keep at it. Right. Now, most people that I see that are environmentalists are practicing what I would call, it's my CCCSC, coercing, cajoling, convincing, seeking compliance, which I find ineffective. Mm-hmm. 
which is why I'm not saying to you, like, here's one little thing you can do. In our first conversation, I took a long time to invite you to think of something you could do, not for me to suggest for you what to do. And that was after getting from you what you thought about when you thought about the environment so that you'd be acting on intrinsic motivation. Yep, and I, and I have my uh, like you, little you, plastic bag right in here. That awesome, I, yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, there it is. It's very funny. I play the game uh, for your listeners. I have a phone. I don't carry a wallet anymore, but I have a phone with a back that folds open where I keep a credit card, driver's license, folded up $20 bill. And then I have a dog poop bag rolled up at the bottom that's very thin that I ask people to guess what it is. And basically nobody can ever guess because it's the weirdest thing. Why? Who carries in their cell phone case a folded up poop bag? How's that been? Have you used it much? Not the much, chicken that time? not much. I cleaned up the chicken on that subway because it's interesting. Uh, just this morning, maybe you inspired me, but mostly I was just home for the first time in a while going out, walking my dogs in Central Park. But every Monday when people are out in Central Park over the weekend, they're just littering like crazy. You know, they're having their barbecues out there and they have birthday parties out there. And I must have picked up at least 50 pieces, you know, if not more of trash, you know, filling the pockets of my little fleece I was wearing in addition to my dog's poop bags. It wasn't so much dog poop I was cleaning up as every other form of trash. But I had my poop bags with me, uh, so, you know, in the waist belts with the dog's treats and stuff like that. So I didn't need to use the one that I carry here on my phone. So I find that's where I still do, you know, 90 plus percent of my trash uh, you know, picking up trash. But I was pretty pleased. I was out for a hike the other day up in um, western Massachusetts, you know, up Monument Mountain outside Great Barrington. And uh, you could tell some napkins had fallen out of a hiker's pocket. And there were just, you know, three or four napkins on the ground. And I was doing a speed lap. You know, it's a two and a half mile lap that I was, you know, go up a mountain and then run down the other side of it and do a loop. And, you know, I stopped, picked up the trash, stuck it in my pocket and threw it out when I got home, you know, so. Would you have done that had we not spoken? You know, I've definitely been more conscious about it. So probably not. I'm, uh, you know, look, when I was biking down here today, I was running a little late. I knew you were waiting for me. I've got a couple events later today. So it wasn't like I was stopping my bike every time I saw a piece of trash in the four, 4.4 miles down here from my apartment to your apartment because, you know, I passed 10,000 pieces of trash. And I was running late, right? So it's definitely, to some extent, situational, not absolute. But, you know, look, like you said, to bring about change, you know, you just, you know, small steps at the margin add up over time. You know, the journey of a thousand miles is not made up of one leap, but lots of steps. Uh, might you be on a path of continual improvement, a joyful path of continual improvement? Yeah, it's, uh, I've definitely uh, become conscious of not using straws. I can't say, like, there have been a couple instances I'm now conscious of it. Like, if a waiter brings a drink and there's a straw in it, I sort of kick myself. I was like, ah, I should have said, you know, I don't need a straw. Because once they've opened the straw and stuck it in the drink, the harm is done, right? So, yes, I would say I'm on a, a reasonable trajectory of small steps about straws and about picking up trash. And at this point, not much more. Though I will tell you, there's a big decision I have to make um, soon, buying a new car. My oldest daughter's going off to business school up at uh, Dartmouth in two months. It looks likely that we will give her our car, which is a gas-fueled, you know, Volvo XC60. Car safety is by far the most important thing to me. I've had 
numerous friends and family, including my own wife, who fell asleep at the wheel um, and went off the road and totaled our Volvo XC90, our former Volvo. But at least a half dozen close friends and family have had some very serious car accidents, totaling cars, concussions, two children dying. Uh, two friends have lost children in car accidents in the last three years, four years probably. So we're buying another car. My inclination is just to buy another Volvo. My wife and I will buy the exact same XC60 we have now, give my daughter the four-year-old one, and my wife and I will take the new car, right? But I'm wondering, you know, I, I'd be curious whether should I spend a lot more money for a Tesla, for example, or some other EV car, or whether, because I keep hearing stories about, well, right now the power grid is such that when you're, quote, refueling your Tesla with electricity, it's probably coming from a coal or gas-powered plant or oil-powered plant or something. So you're really not doing that much for the environment. If you want to buy a Tesla because it's cool and fun and has good acceleration, great, but don't kid yourself that this is some great environmental move. So the stuff that you are doing, mm -hmm. what's motivating you? It depends, is the answer. Like the straw is, is oh, I'll probably have to go do a podcast with Josh. So I better be able to tell him I did something. <laughs> you know, I can't claim there's some big environmental uh, motivation there. I will say uh, picking up trash in Central Park, there are two motivations. One, it's my backyard. I live directly across the street from there. And so, you know, it's maybe a little bit of self-interest, but it's, it's also just something I feel like, you know, if everyone picked up trash on the sidewalk outside of their building, there would be no trash. Like, I just got back from Rwanda in March, where we went on a safari to see the mountain gorillas and all. And Paul Kagame, the somewhat autocratic, or maybe highly autocratic, depending on your point of view, dictator, basically, ruler of Rwanda, I call him the Lee Kuan Yew of Africa, Lee Kuan Yew being the autocratic dictator of Singapore, but who took Singapore to incredible heights and prosperity and peace and so forth. In Rwanda, one half day on a weekend per month, every citizen of Rwanda is expected to go out and clean their neighborhood. Every single person in Rwanda basically does that. And it's a requirement, sort of a, I mean, I don't think they put people in prison if you don't do that. But there is, like, Rwanda, my parents live in Kenya, my sister live in Kenya, so we go to Kenya frequently. This is my first time in Rwanda. Now, Rwanda, everybody thinks about the genocide in 1994. It's a much poorer country than Kenya on a GDP per capita basis. But Kenya is corrupt, fairly dysfunctional, loud, noisy, and dirty. It's just pollution, trash everywhere. Rwanda, I didn't see, I was there for 10 days traveling all over Rwanda. I can't recall seeing a single piece of trash anywhere. And so I want that to be my neighborhood too. I was like, if freaking Rwanda can do it, why can't I do it in my little piece of Central Park? Why can't we do this in the United States? So part of it's just caring about my own little neighborhood and all, uh, which maybe has a little element of self-interest. But I also tell you, like, I feel like I've checked off something off my to-do list. Uh, it feels like I've accomplished something. I've walked the loop around the East Meadow, uh, right across the street from my apartment building, and picking up uh, trash. And actually, the nastier the trash, the better. Um, dog poop being the worst. And I pick that up. Other dogs poop as well. Uh, that... I just get a little bit of a positive feeling, you know, like this is, I'm doing my little bit to make the world a little bit better place. And even if I'm just doing it by myself and nobody's watching, like it's actually better almost if nobody watches or says anything, right? Because it's just something I'm doing internally and it 
you know, everybody, I suppose, likes to feel like they're a good and moral person and doing good deeds, right, of whatever sort. So, you know, it was like when I was at the Baltimore train station a couple of weeks ago, there was an elderly couple, each had a heavy suitcase, and they had to go down steps to get down to the platform of the Amtrak station in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I said, here, let me get that for you. And I just grabbed both suitcases and walked and down the steps, right? <laughs> and then they said, thank you. And, and uh, I just, yeah, it's just, you know. If I can do little things like that sort of every day, the rest of my life, those are the kind of habits that you know Warren Buffett talked about where he said the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. And I actually think the little habits you get into about how you treat people and talk to people, you know, whether you clean up after yourself and maybe even clean up a little bit after other people, right? Like those habits define who you are and define, I think, the trajectory of your life. So I think I I actually probably do more thinking about habits and just the little things than just about anybody I know, Um, because I think it's right. You know, it's so easy. Uh, Habits about exercise and diet will define how long you live, for sure, for example. So, you know, how you treat your loved ones will define how much they love you and whether they'll be there for you. You know, when you need them, right? Um, how you treat your friends. Uh, so so uh, I'd like to think uh, I wouldn't characterize my environmental habits sort of at the top of my list, but I think I was doing okay. And, ever, you know, the thir- since I started talking to you a few months ago, I think I'm doing a little better. And, you know, I'd give myself a B. <laughs> what I'm hearing is I'm hearing intrinsic motivation and leading to reward, a feeling of reward, independent of the external how much it affects the world. And I think that means that it will lead you to be more open to get more information. Things that you don't know about, you'll be more open to hearing about. It will lead you to, your identity will slightly change. People know you as the guy who, oh yeah, Whitney picks that stuff up. And then it'll be more comfortable the next stages. I'm probably describing my pattern because at the beginning, I didn't know or care. I mean, I cared, but I didn't think I could make a difference. And so I, the word that I heard biggest there was trajectory that you're on a different trajectory. And if I think if, if something's change depends on its own thing, then that's the exponential growth. And, you know, I'm biased. I want to see that. But that's, I mean, you joked at the beginning you were doing it because of me. And there is in my method accountability built in to have that second conversation. If I, if I didn't have the second conversation, there would be all leadership, no management. So it needs accountability and management. Right. And by the way, I mean, look... Um... I started thinking about habits because, uh, you know, I started going and listening to Warren Buffett and him talking about it, right? Like, you know, when you talk to people, people, and they're doing something interesting, something different, something that makes the world a better place in a way I'd never thought about before, you know, I, I shamelessly steal best ideas uh, in every possible way I can from other people, and I, you know, I process stuff, and I... I accepted the email that you sent me out of the blue and, you know, took a few hours out of my busy schedule just to come down here because you sort of sounded like an interesting guy. I Googled you before I did, right? Who is this guy using my technique on me? Yeah, yeah, and calling, you know, hurling insults at me the same way I hurl insults at others to get their attention, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I... 
was listening to Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher's podcast called Pivot on my drive up to my 35th high school reunion. Um, it, was a, it was sort of an emotional weekend in that, you know, it just brought back such memories and days pre-cell phones, days when I was sort of a know-nothing, sort of combination cocky, insecure, obnoxious uh, kid. And, uh, you know, I connected with two old high school girlfriends, but also a third one who I hurt a lot. Uh, and seeing her as a 55-year-old woman, I'm 55 now, you know, and wondering whether I should apologize to her for something I did at the age of 15 or something like that. Like, uh, But also seeing the life, how people's lives turned out and talking to people and hearing their stories and uh, the number of people whose lives were derailed by alcohol and the people who didn't come to reunion because they're dead because of two main reasons. Cancer, uh, of the six that I know of in my class of 400, so 1.5% of my high school class is dead. Three were cancer and three were suicide slash death of depression, uh, death of, you know, whatever, um, depression slash suicide. And then again, sort of thinking about the habits that I, you know, I was lucky enough. Well, before I ever thought about this, I just had good guidance from my parents and all. But then thinking about, you know, habits and picking the right mentors and people to emulate. And so all of this, you know, almost leads to us sitting here and talking is sort of part of that journey of opening my mind, thinking about new things that I'd never thought about before, and trying to change just a little bit, develop a little, change my habits just a little bit, you know? See, this is the kind of conversation that I find much more conducive to people actually changing their habits and behavior than this is what happens at two degrees, this is what happens at two and a half degrees, this is what plastic does to your veins. Like, that's important if we have no knowledge of it, but I think the science is pretty clear right now. We don't, I mean, of course, I'm a fan of more science, but that's not leadership. And leader talking about habits, talking about the chains building until they, they can't be broken, and, but also what has worked for you in the past. Right. But thinking, you know, as I think about sort of environmental stuff, I mean, how is, you know, what you'd really love to do is change everybody's sort of perspective and have them be, have a plan and be mission driven and all. But I think the reality, if you want to affect broad change across hundreds of millions or billions of people and so forth is, you almost have to think about what are the things that you can just nudge? What are, was there a book called Nudge? Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. That can you nudge them a little bit, change their habits a little bit? So things, you know, the classic things were, you know, making um, when someone is a new employee at a corporation that offers a retirement plan, the default option is to have X percent of your salary, you know, automatically taken out. And someone has to opt out as opposed to opt in. And the compliance rates went from 20% to 80%. Many U.S. states, when you apply for a driver's license, the op they change the opt-in to be an organ donor, and you have to opt out of being an organ donor. And the states that did that, it's 80% of the population is an organ donor versus 20%, right? So little things around recycling, that kind of thing, making it just a little bit easier. So I would, nudging is to me a tactic, and I'm thinking at the strategic level as well, is I want to lead leaders, and leaders create leaders. So I want to create leaders who create leaders and so forth. And... On the individual level, I, I'm finding all sorts of nudgy type things through doing it myself. So there's a big piece of it is like actually doing things. I think if you want to solve a problem, it's so much more effective to face. If it's, a, if it's life or death, maybe don't 
shoot first and ask questions later. But if it's like, can I make it a week without packaged food? Analyzing and planning, not effective. Just saying, I'm starting now and see, like, I don't think I'm going to die and figure out like, okay, I boil beans. I'll figure it out. Like I knew that's like within my ability to figure out before I die within a week. And I did it. And so with this being off the grid, there's all sorts of things that pop up that only by doing it, like there's so many people like, look, the sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. Renewables don't work. Maybe they don't, but what can I do? So I find also the nudging stuff. You, you probably know the one about like some houses are built uh, where the power supply, the power thing, you could see it and some were built not. And it was unintentional, but the ones where you could see the power use, they use much less power or measurably less power. So it's not here, but my battery that's charging upstairs, it shows how much power something is using. So I can see when I plug my phone in, it's like one watt. Mm-hmm. But when I'm, if I do a couple apps, it's two watts. Now, no, why don't you have multiple batteries and multiple solar things so that you've always got one or two up there on the roof? I mean, you could have 10 up on the roof right now, right? Now, so now I have to figure out, what, from learning from this experiment, what's next? Certainly, my board members, who are like really difficult to work with, well, in some ways, in some ways they're cool. I'm sure they say the same of you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone speaks so nicely of me. <laughs> so your face. They were, and the... Uh, now, I think most people, most times, are trying to figure out how to annoy me. And that's what they do all the time. They would say it's reciprocating. <laughs> so when I was up there, I, I left it up there for a while. And when I went back up to get it, so it's 22 flights that day. Right. The board members were having some meeting. And they'd moved it to the side. And, were, and they started asking me all about it. Like, how does it work? Having a meeting up on the roof. Yeah, not a formal meeting. I mean, because we're all friends. Right, right. And they asked me about it. And I started answering them. And, and then later... I went up another time and saw it had been moved and it turned out it was the super mm. and there's not a whole lot of space up there. So we talked and there's like, we figured out a place where I could put it where it wouldn't be in anyone's way. And it's actually better for me. It's better for him. So it's slowly. So now I think if I went to the building and said, can we like, I don't, doesn't, why do I bring the solar panels back down? I want to leave them up there, but they're not, I don't want to leave them out in the rain and there's no place indoors to keep them. So I keep bringing them back down, but now they're maybe more open to, what if we put up a solar panel that's up there all the time and anyone who gets a battery can charge it however much they want? Or we could wire it down to some, or this, you know, you might've seen this, some of the penthouse and the building, the higher floors, they have patios. They could do it all the time. So there's lots of options that become open when you do it. Mm-hmm. If I don't do it, it's all hypothetical. And it's all, all this hypothetical talk is so useless. Mm-hmm. Counterproductive because that's mo- like, that's not what we are doing right now. If you hadn't done something like picking up litter, in fact, if you listen to our first conversation before we got into what the environment meant to you and inviting you to act on it, you were all over the place about all these hypothetical things. And we could talk about that forever and we'd be full of outrage and we could say all these other people should do all this sort of stuff. And when that happens, then we can do it. But I read you enjoying what you've done so far. I'm certainly enjoying what I've done so far. I've made the mistakes or some things that didn't work out, but that's the shift that I'm trying to engender that yes, there's lots of priorities and lots of things that are going on. But when one of your things, whenever one of your priorities is you're hungry and there's delicious food around, you're not like, Hmm, should I eat the food? You're like, right. you eat the food. Right. And you put off what you're going to do. Otherwise, if you have to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. Right. That it might be low priority, Compared to like, if you could save 
a million lives in some other country, it might seem like, well, you could go to the bathroom later. But that's, to me, now that I've done a bunch of these things, like for me, if I'm hungry, there can be all the McDonald's around and none of them do I want to go into. The smell of the grease from the fries is nauseating to me now. And it used to be, couldn't keep away. And I didn't mean for that to happen, but I'm really glad it did. And I think that could happen. So nudging would be one tactic in, in that. Lots of other ones. Mm -hmm. That's my game, <laughs> is joy and delight. Here, I put the word delight full. Yeah, and what? Sustainability. Yeah, I was like, should that be a title of a book? Delightful Sustainability. Yeah. But that word delightful is like, yeah, this is really delightful. And yeah. how does that sound to you? Sounds good. It's different than what you hear, right? Right. Like, I'm really glad Greta's doing what she's doing, but she doesn't sound very delightful. Yeah. 350.org, not delightful, not fun. Yeah. I mean, if Exxon broke the law, I think we should prosecute them. That's what justice, the justice system's for. But that's not necessarily going to get the CEO of Exxon to want to change. Mm-hmm. Yep, well, I applaud what you're doing. I applaud what you're doing. I'll cheer you on, participate a little bit. You know, and add this as sort of one more little thing in my life where I've changed my habits a little bit and have higher awareness. And you never know when something, you know, when the right confluence of things comes along. You know, sometimes, I mean, look, life in general, Charlie Munger once described, and I think he's right, whereas everyone has this view of, you know, the, at least the goal is, and the expectation is steady upward progression. And he's like, life doesn't really work that way. It works in like step functions where you just sort of go along. You're working hard. You're studying in school or whatever. You're building relationships, whatever. But nothing really changes for a while. It's like you're, you flatlined and it, and it can be frustrating, whatever. But if you're doing sort of the right things and creating like shots on goal kind of thing, like opportunities boom, you know, and be prepared to act when an opportunity presents itself. You know, there's the, you can have big step functions and that's the way life tends to work. And sometimes down, right? And critically, you have to avoid the step functions that uh, he, he calls it going back to go, get sent back to go. Or worse, um, you know, with some of the things I do, like mountain climbing and so forth, and riding my bike in New York City is, is getting sent back to go means sent to your grave, like game over. So I don't think I've done uh, anything close to step functions here, but I think I've created a little bit of, you know, a little bit more opportunity, you know, that there, you know, the higher chance of some good step function coming out of this. Well, I think the the zero to one Maybe sometime later, there's 100,000 to 500,000. And a difference of one compared to a difference of 400,000 is very small. But I think that might be one of the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. I'm going to share with you one of my... Where I keep getting to deeper and deeper levels of what the resistance is, where people's resistance is coming from. And I think one of the biggest is that even when people want to pollute less, one of the big ones is that a thousand years ago, we were, our ancestors, our cultural ancestors were living like serfs, tied to the land, working nonstop from dawn to dusk, uh, miserable, 30 years old age, and going farther back to the Stone Age. You know, We put on fat so quickly because they never knew where their next meal was going to come from. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And pollution may be bad, but the last thing we want to do is revert to that. And that model tells us that we have to first substitute for power, then we can lower fossil fuel. We have to bring something new, then we can lower the old thing. But we must not let us slide back because we may never not recover again. That's what, I don't know if you, have you heard Sebastian Younger, uh, Tribe, and Restrepo was his big movie. Um, yes, yes. Um, was Restrepo a movie as well? Documentary, yes. Yeah, it's a documentary, yes. Uh, it's been a while, but yeah. So did you, have you read Tribe? I think so. It's been a long time. One of the big beginnings is that uh, in colonial times, there was a lot of people, a lot of European colonists who went to live with the Indians never came back. Indians who lived with colonists always came back. Mm, Interesting. And around the world, I'm I'm now researching this, but the story that we tell ourselves that it's better, our culture is better, is, as far as I can tell, a lie. We're projecting onto others fears that we don't want to face because almost everywhere where the colonialists went, which could be North America, South America, uh, Australia, was resisted everywhere. If our culture is so great, why did we have to kill them to accept it. Right. Why do they resist? Why do they continue to resist today? In head-to-head competition, they look at us and say, we don't want to live like that. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of... So I think that we told ourselves a story that keeps ourselves... That I mean, I think it was a story... This is me now off on a limb. But that I think they were like... They felt terrible. And they must have said, like, this, is, this would be the colonists. Like, we're killing these people left and right... We're not supposed to kill people all over the place. There must be a reason we're doing it. It must be for their own good. Right. And that story persists to today. And to listeners who are not themselves of European descent, if you are flying around and you're living in our culture and you're not doing your best to switch out of it, your genetic ancestors may be different, but your cultural ancestors are the same. You've become in this culture, you've been assimilated or whatever the right term would be. So... The way out of it is to, so for me, my role models now are like the Hadza and the San uh, and Native Americans, and they live really joyful lives. And so people look at me and say, okay, you're off the power grid in, in Manhattan. That's extreme. But to me, I look at them and I think I'm approaching them. The more that I try to live sustainably, the more that I replace it with things like ritual and exercise and cultural things like singing and like I'm, that book of Lincoln over there. It's like almost finished 600 pages. And that's what I'm doing at like 5 a.m. Because <laughs> I'm not making any calls at that time. Right. And exercise. And that's what they do. And I'm surprised to find that that model of which was in me for a long time. Like, I don't want to live like the serfs. The serfs only worked 150 days a year. Mm-hmm. And the days that they worked were like much more lenient. They, we have less freedom than they did in many ways. And if I say that to people, someone who told that to me a while ago, but now it's very interesting to me because my behavioral change. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to read your expression. I largely agree with you. Um, the only thing I'd say is, you know, I've spent some time with, I've started a scholarship program for this Samburu up in Northern Kenya who are nomadic cow and goat herders. 
and I don't know what you call anthropologists study them because they've been so off the grid, sort of like the people, the you know whatever people who live in the the tribes that live in the jungles of Papua New Guinea or something, right? Like untouched by modernity. How where can you find people like that or in the Amazon? And there is uh, there's truth to what you say. On the other hand, their happiness is offset by minor illnesses, for example, that might kill them when there's a simple drug that would cure them, or their teeth start to decay. And, you know, starting at age 40 or something, their teeth are always in pain, or, you know, guinea worms, or uh, river blindness, you know, things like that, right? So there are definitely some aspects of modernity that they really want and uh, and are glad that, yeah. Uh, that a road, a highway, finally got built up through northern Kenya, up into Ethiopia. On the other hand, that highway also brought HIV-AIDS. And truckers um, willing to pay for sex, so all of a sudden there was now prostitution in a society that didn't have it, etc., right? Yeah, this is where I am right now. So what, what I think about as I'm falling asleep is like, I'm not sure we're going to hit heaven on earth. I don't see that happening in my lifetime. It's, there's pros and cons each way. It seems that in head-to-head competition, people choose not modernity. I don't think we have to lose some of the best parts of modernity. Right. Like child infant mortality, picking one thing, many. Right. I think it's more about washing hands. You know, it's like, I think we can get a lot of the best of both. Well, I remember we sent our three daughters off to summer camp every summer, starting at age, I don't know, seven or eight up in Maine, through most of high school. And then in their junior year of high school, separately, they did a program called Maine Coast Semester at Chewankee, which was sort of a summer camp, that, but they run a year-round program, uh, either your fall semester or your spring semester for high school juniors. But what was similar about all of these is they took away their damn phones for the summer or for the semester, and they slept in bunk rooms where um, at the Maine Coast Semester during the winter, either late fall or the spring semester, they had to go out and they chopped wood and then someone in the middle of the night in the bunk and there was a wood burning stove in the middle of the bunk so not only did they not have their technology they could use laptops to do homework in the central area at designated times because they were the main coast semester at Chewankis during the school year and you have to keep up with your schoolwork your junior year of course but it was transformative for my daughters and i have numerous friends right now who have daughters uh, like one is literally hospitalized at this time because she said, I'm going to kill myself in three days. But other daughter, anxiety and depression, particularly among teenage girls, has skyrocketed, not just in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia. And I'm convinced um, social media is a big portion for it. So getting my daughters into situations where they and everyone around them was off their frickin' phones was super important, even though they obviously eventually came back from summer camp or from their semester program, at least became aware um, by going without it for a few months, right? So I'm not quite sure how that relates to sort of environmental stuff as, as well, other than I suppose, you know, if you go through a period of trying something that you just used to take for granted and then you go without it for a while, you know, even if you sort of go back to it, at least partially, you're sort of more aware of it. And, um, uh, you know, was that your alarm going off or a phone call? Because I think we're over an hour. Yeah, we are. So the alarm I said. Like, should uh, we wrap up now? Yeah. Are you game for another conversation? This is kind of free form. And sure. Okay. Every couple, every few months, come down here and talk. 
All right. Anything to wrap up with? No, I guess I would. Uh, I'm glad we had the chance and our conversation sort of led me to think about the and to talk about the importance of habits, because I think that relates to environmental related and sustainability related things is both changing your own personal habits, but encouraging figuring out ways to get other people to change their habits. But it's much, much more than environmental slash sustainability. It literally, just as it, your personal habits and the things you do define your life and the trajectory of your life, you know, the habits of the population define the trajectory of a country, I would argue. It's almost like, you know, how can governments encourage good habits among people, like in Rwanda versus Kenya, related to just trash, right? I read an article about how Australia had one-tenth the number of COVID deaths as the United States. And part of it was lockdown policies, but a big part of it was the level of social trust there was. People are sort of in the habit, almost, of trusting one another. Whereas this country, that's plunged any way you want to measure it, right? And, and it's something I talk about quite a bit in my book, um, The Art of Playing Defense, is, is, you know, avoiding the calamities in life is, a lot of it is, is developing good habits. Well, if you come up, my, what I'm going to want to start next time on, if I remember this, if that thought plus our conversations leads to things that I haven't come up with, well, Whitney Tilson, thank you very much. My pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.